you, worship team. Remember that lyric, crown him thou unrivaled king. That's the goal. Our, our series is the life of Joseph. We're going to look at an entire chapter, chapter 42, and it's, an ex- it's really good. Uh, you may remember the last two Sundays we've discussed how Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and then was put into a position of power. And he had seven years of abundance where he gathered and was faithful. And then uh, the, the end of chapter 41, we see the seven years of famine uh, come into the land and it spreads all the way down to Can- or up to Canaan from Egypt. So that's where we are in verse four, or chapter 42. It's long, so I'm going to start reading. But you'll enjoy it. It's a story. Just relax. Breathe in. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, for his brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is, the, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let no one of your brother brothers remain confined where you are. Excuse me. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they said, and they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? 
but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys and their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give the donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At their heart, and their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us as to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your scripture. Thank you for the honesty uh, that we see contained in this. Thank you that your spirit has delivered it to us to learn more of our own faith and walk with you and more of your character. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the meaning of this passage and to grow closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Was that a perfectly clear chapter? When I was studying it, I thought, man, I've got to keep reading this to kind of grasp it. Part of the problem for me has, is uh, my expectation would be something like this. Why can't they go to Egypt Say they're in need. Joseph sees who it is, tells them who he is. They have this kind of major, you know, reuniting. He helps them, and it's all better. I mean, isn't that the idea? Why all of this? Um, and so we want to dive into that, but I want to just summarize it so we're at least clear of what's happened. There's a famine. The brothers have to go to Egypt because they hear of this governor giving, selling grain. It's Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. He knows it's them. They have this kind of back and forth, and then basically he sends them back with grain so they have some food, and he wants them to bring back Benjamin to him along with them. Then they can have Simeon back. That's the setup. 
And at the very end of our story, we know that that Jacob is crushed by this information. He does not want to let Benjamin leave. And so that's the story. And then we have several other chapters to continue to process it. The title of this story, uh, of this sermon, I I thought of like this morning. That's the problem with titles. Like the, the best title would have been, Are You Living the Dream? And that's my question to you. Are you living the dream? That's kind of an American question, isn't it? And yet what we find in our passage is that Joseph's dreams have been realized. Like the two dreams he had in chapter 37 are happening in chapter 42. And it's this amazing moment where there's, a, there's this huge sort of dichotomy. There's what Joseph sees in his dream and what he knows is true. And there's what the brothers are wanting. See, the brothers are starving. Their families are dying. They need sustenance. But they have no idea what they actually need. And this really is, I think, a big problem of our Christian lives, is that we come to Jesus wanting some grain, don't we? We want some help. We need that job. We need that healing. We want that thing to be fixed. But besides that, we want to go back to Canaan and just kind of go about our merry way. Jesus has a dream. Jesus has a plan. And it's far bigger than anything we've ever known. And so my goal this morning would be that we would grasp that we are part of this movement we began talking about last week of the fulfillment of God's plan. He is drawing us in like Joseph's brothers to be all that we were meant to be. So we're going to look at two broad points, the the real need and the real process this morning. So let's look at the real need first. In Christianity, I think there are uh, two types of needs. Um, there are the things that we think we need, and they're, and they're legitimate, but then there's the greater need. So, for example, every time I eat ice cream, my dog thinks it needs to lick the bowl. Every time. And if I'm eating chocolate, every time that dog, Pepper, because she's precious, will come up and give me these precious eyes, and I'm torn because I know chocolate will harm her but I want her to be happy. So what do I have to do? I have to actually meet her deeper longing, which is to live another day. We go to God with all of these felt needs that are super important and he desperately cares about, but God is absolutely interested in the deeper heartfelt need that we have and he wants us to come online with longing for that. That's survival. So think about these, these, these brothers in our text. They, they come to Joseph. Uh, it appears to me that each son has a bag. I don't know if, if they have more than one bag. Let's just say one big old bag. And they get a full bag of grain. That was the plan. And they're going to go all the way back up to Canaan from Egypt. It's a seven-year plague. You know what I mean? Like how long, and he's already feeding the donkey on the trip back, right, out of this bag. And I think we're just like this. Like we, we, we don't grasp the depth of the problem, do we? We don't understand the greatness of what is before us. Yet God does. We sing this song every, I mean, not every week, but often. We sing it a lot. Many of you are probably, you sing this a lot. Uh, I ask the Lord that I might grow by John Newton. And we love that hymn because 
we are all, many of us as Christians are saying, Lord, we want to grow. We really do. We want grain. We want fruit. We want, we want flowering in our Christians li- Christian lives. But if you follow the hymn through, what happens is eventually problems come and heartaches come and challenges come. And the question is, God, why? Why? Are, why? Why this process? And God says, because I answer prayer for grace and faith in this way. I'm here to bring you into what you really need. See, often we're the dog asking for the chocolate, and God's like, let me give you full flourishing and full healing. There's more that you, than what you realize that you need. What did those brothers need? Remember the dreams? The dream uh, from 37 was that they would, bow, they would circle and bow down to Joseph in one of the dreams. But in another one, it was that they would show up with these sheaves that were basically whittled down to nothing. And Joseph's would be flourishing. And what we find is if you take those dreams and you look at this context of 42, they needed to live like in Egypt near Joseph where the food would be plentiful for the seven years. That's what they needed. And I think so often that makes us scared. That God doesn't just want to give us sprinkles of grain. He wants to dwell with us and us with him. Right? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That is the goal. C.S. Lewis uh, famously um, talks about how we think we have these lofty desires, lofty goals. He says, your, your desires are far too small. He says, we bother about our desires like half-hearted children who are playing with mud pies in an alleyway as if this is real when all the while God is offering us a holiday at the beach. And I think one of the struggles we have in our Christian faith is we really do come to moments like these where we hear God wants all of you, meaning all of your being, he wants you to dwell with him. And many of us hear this, God is boring and he just wants us to be equally as boring as he is, but with like white knuckle determinism. And that's what the Christian life looks like. We just give up all the fun. And yet the scriptures are very clear. No, no. What's happened is our affections have fallen in love with mud pies. Our affections have fallen in love with chocolate that will kill us. Not real chocolate for us as humans. Please keep eating your chocolate. But like the dog. And, and God is saying, I have a flourishing life for you if you will come into my presence. I've been meditating on Psalm 27 quite a bit lately, and this week particularly. And you may remember this is the psalm where David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He is beautiful. And to look at him and to be ravished with him brings glory and honor and change to our lives. So here's my question. Do you have even a desire for that, even an inkling? Many of you love that concept and you do it. Many of you are like, I want to be there. I struggle. And there may be unbelievers in this room who think, you know, what would that look like? I want to talk about the process. The process is how we get there. The true need is to be in the presence and feeding with Jesus The process is this. There are these two things we need. So I want to unpack this story to get to them before I tell you the steps. You see these uh, brothers have showed up. There's ten of them. 
And Joseph says, you're spies. Isn't that kind of an interest? Did you wonder, like, what's he doing? Well, when you have ten men show up, you know, here you are feeding the, the surrounding world with food and selling and all this. And pe- this group of ten come in. Though Joseph didn't actually think they were spies, it was a plausible accusation. Like, are you here to check out what's going on, to kind of infiltrate and get information? And it's a fascinating uh, accusation he makes to them. And did you catch their response in verse 11? We are all sons of one man. In other words, there's 10 of us because we're all like brothers. And then they add this. We are honest men. Okay. Remember... um, that father, <laughs> yeah. So for the last 13 years, see, he thought Joseph was dead because of like a bear or a lion. But you, 10 honest men, had sold him into slavery, taken his coat, shredded it up, killed something and put blood on it, and then handed it to Jacob and said, does this look familiar? We don't even know. this." And then Jacob's like, that's my son's garment and he's melted and depressed and has never recovered for 13 years so he's a shadow of a person when we come to him in chapter 42 like you're not touching Benjamin he's just done but there are are 10 honest men what's happening they have a complete delusion about the sin don't they they have no idea the, the, the cost of what they've done and so they've come into the presence of Joseph and Joseph's got a process for them. He could have just said, here, it's me. I love you guys. Go get Benjamin. Let's try to get this thing together. I had these awesome dreams. But I don't think he trusts them yet. And I think they need to be tested and tried a little bit. And quite frankly, they need to be sanctified, don't they? They need to have some change done. There's a quote on the front of our worship guide. We looked at it this Wednesday from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. Now, in our passage, these brothers did this horrific act with Joseph. They seem to have sealed off their conscience and gone forward. And here we are. They're in the presence of Joseph. You know the story. They've been sent home, and they've been told how it's going to all happen. Actually, they're still in his presence. When in verse 21... They finally admit to each other in their native language, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Now, when we were studying that story, it was profound how there was zero mention of him begging, wasn't there? In fact, we said that it seems like the author of Genesis, under the inspiration of the Spirit, was sort of guiding us toward Jesus as a sheep before his shears, silent. But now what we find out is actually, in retrospect, that even though that's how that was presented in 37, these brothers heard Joseph begging. Remember the story? They're eating their food, and in the earshot is their brother 
begging, don't do this, please. Ah, ignore him, keep eating. And now, in their time of need, they're feeling the weight of that because it's real. What do you do with your sin? How do you confess your sin? Most of us want to get it behind us as fast as we possibly can. You know, I say this often, but I've noticed with my children, and then I think I do it in my marriage, just like, sorry. I'm sorry. Now, that legally has taken care of every mention of this for the rest of time. We can't ever broach that subject again because the word sorry came out quickly, and it's now taken care of. That is the blood of Christ. It's all good. No. Right? That's not me expressing and understanding my sin. James famously tells us, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What would you answer? Well, I don't get along with that person. They annoy me. We have different Enneagram numbers. Don't you know I'm a six, they're an eight with a wing two? I don't, you know. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not why we don't get along. Why don't we get along, James? Because you don't have what you want, so you desire to murder. That's what's going on in our soul. So when we come face to face with our sin and we say, it's a shortcoming, I made a mistake, I was cranky that day, whatever, we're totally lying, we're dishonest. And what's, here's the problem with that, to the degree that we leave it unexamined, it will continue to make its place in our lives. Would you want to hang out with a person who's murdered people and then just tells you it was a shortcoming, but they've never really dealt with the issues underlying their murdering of their friends? And you're like, well, I'm going to probably set up a boundary here, <laughs> like uh, at least a 10-foot barricade because I'm scared of you. The Bible wants us to come face-to-face -face with our sin because it actually happened and we actually did it. And we need to see the reality of the pain of it so that we understand the length Jesus has gone to, to cover it. So the brothers had to see that sin. That's part of the process. But they also needed to see the weightiness of, well, actually, I'm going to, uh, sorry. Uh, I wanted to illustrate this. Just We've heard of like um, famous theologians, Augustine, who in his confessions talks about stealing pears. Jonathan Edwards, in a letter to convert, a young convert, talks about, he tells her to actually uh, consider all the sins prior to her conversion. And it just, you're, why are these, these people saying this? And it's because, again, their conscience needs to not be hardened to the reality of the brokenness of this process. And by the freedom of the gospel is that I can actually begin to name what I've done so that I begin to change and rewire and my heart begins to grow closer to Jesus. Isn't it Philippians 2 that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Over and over in the scripture, the, the injunction is, don't make this super simple, like it's going to be painful. So have you looked at these places in your lives where you regularly and routinely have sinned against people? And have you been broken over that? Now, the second thing, that's the one part of the process. The second part of this process is feeling the weight of Jesus. It's interesting how when the first brother opens the sack, he sees this silver given back to him 
and immediately feels shame. Why? Well, he knows he didn't intend for that silver to be put there, but the fear that he feels immediately is that Joseph, back in Egypt, now whoever that governor is, is now convinced he's a spy and Simeon's as good as dead. Right? That's the, that would be the emotion. You open the sack, and then later in the passage, they all open their sack, they see it, and immediately they know, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't explain my way out of that one. And that's kind of how shame works, which is interesting, because there are, they were not guilty of stealing the money. But they felt it, right? They felt it as if they had stolen the money. Shame comes in and convinces you of things that may not even be true about you. But the reason it can do that is there's something that's even truer about you than that. The worst part of them is not that they stole or they might have been spies. The worst part of these brothers is that they murdered Joseph or they sold him into slavery. And they lied to their father and now they're parading around as if they're honest men. How are you and I going around talking about ourselves like that? Are you walking around saying, I'm an honest person, I'm an upstanding citizen, I'm a, I'm a church attender, I tithe. Like, what are the things you wear to, to sort of fight off those feelings of guilt and shame? See, they did not feel the weight of not either their sin or the trueness of Joseph and his glory. Right, Joseph is an honest man. They did not understand who he was because they just saw him as the giver of grain. There's a passage in Isaiah where this is sort of illustrated, where Isaiah comes into the throne room of God. <clears throat> Some theologians call this a pre-incarnate Christophany of Jesus. And he sees Jesus in his glory and he hears the angel saying, holy, 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 and just the, the reverberation through the temple and he says, woe is me. I am undone. And, it, and he says, you know, I live among a people of unclean lips. And I have unclean lips. And, and people have wrestled with what he's trying to say there. And I believe what, what he's saying is, like, I talk about God. I'm a prophet of God. I talk to people who talk about God. But now that I'm in the presence of the true God, I recognize that I have not done any." justice to who he is. Everything I've ever said, it falls so far short of the glory of the triune God. Woe is me. He's bigger than you could think. They had not yet, when they left Egypt and made their way up to Canaan, figured out that Joseph was so big. They didn't know it. They just say he's a governor, he gives out stuff. When they see this, their, their hearts tremble within them. They recognize he can crush them, he can kill them. He can take out Simeon, whatever they could do. They knew his power. And I think part of our growth is not only naming the reality of our sin, but falling into enamorment. Is that a word? Because that's the word I feel like I'm using right there. Are you enamored with the glory of Jesus? Man, we just do such a bad thing. We, we, we make him meek and mild. And Jesus, when, if we were to see Jesus... Right now, like Isaiah, we would just fall down, would we not? And say, woe is me. And you may have just come off your best 24 hours, religiously speaking. For 24 hours, you didn't do anything you would be shameful of. You even shared the gospel. You read for 45 minutes in your Bible. Woo! 
And there's Jesus, and you're going to say, woe is me. Not because he's mean and wants to do you harm, but because he's filled with glory. And it's our own fallenness and the chasm that the fall has created that keeps us from seeing his glory. But the scriptures teach that Jesus is the glory. Joseph is simply a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the glory. Jacob, too, forgot who Joseph was and ignored who God was, I think, because I don't know how this perfectly fits in, but I'm just going to say it and let's just see if it works. Uh, do you know who Jacob's dad was? Someone just say the name of Jacob's dad. I heard it. Isaac. Now, you hear the name Isaac. What do you think of? Remember what happened to Isaac when he was a little younger? So it's Jacob's granddad. Now, I, I know my granddad. I know my granddad's war stories. Jacob knew the story. Abraham was called to sacrifice Jacob's dad. And what happens? He's going up the mountain, and Isaac's like, hey, dad, I don't see a ram or a goat. What's happening? <laughs> you know, and they're making their way, and it's like, you're the sacrifice. But we know the story. God stops Abraham's hand in mid-action, provides the ram, the seed will go on. Why is Jacob so protective of Benjamin? Because he's lost sight of the glory of God. Does he not understand that God can deliver Benjamin? So, the, so even Jacob and the brothers included have to come back to this enamorment with what God is doing. And they will. And we'll get there. And what it is this morning we can know is that Jesus is the true Joseph. Jesus is the one who called, not only waited for us in Egypt as we came to him, but Jesus came and rescued us. And I just want to draw our attention to where we finished last week in Philippians 2, because Jesus, Paul tells us, came to earth because he's God. This was his nature to rescue you, to bring you the bread of life himself. And I was reading that as I studied this passage, so freshly reading this, and I've even taught through it, and these things happen to pastors, and it's embarrassing to me. I'm going to just lay it out there. I've always read at the name of Jesus, one day, someday, every knee would bow. Can at least one of you raise your hand that you're with me on that? Thank you. Okay. That's just kind of how that feels to me. And then I'm reading it again and studying it this week, and it says, therefore God has highly exalted him, present tense. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Present tense. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Now, when Jesus returns, you're not going to have both. You're not going to have a heaven and an earth. When he returns, it's heaven. It's the glory. Right? So he's saying, Paul is saying, yes, one day, someday, we will bow before Jesus. But present tense, Christians who are filled with Jesus have been rescued from the bondage of Satan and sin and our flesh. And we are now free to come into his presence and praise him. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our present reality. Is that how we see Jesus? He is the one that has rescued us. He is the true Joseph. What I would encourage us to do is what happens next in Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not fear and trembling like wondering if it's going to work, wondering if God's going to like you, but in the glory and the presence of Jesus, cry out to him, Jesus, lover of my soul, bread of life, the one who brings healing and flourishing. We read in Isaiah 55, the one who longs to restore your souls and your hearts. Jesus, will you come into my heart, my soul, my life, this congregation, this family, and bring flourishing? Will you show me, Jesus, where I am wandering away from you? Will you show me where I'm just using you for grain when you want to bring me the entire glory of your crop and your bread and your life? Are we praying that prayer? I think that's what Paul has in mind. Listen to what he says in the very next verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I think the message we have this morning is we have the true Joseph who longs to bring restoration to our hearts. Let's run to him in prayer and praise and confession, knowing that he is a good, loving Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you didn't wait in heaven for us to figure out how to get to you. But you came to earth to rescue us. And Lord, like Joseph's brothers, we often will come to you with a sack asking for dry grain. When what you want to give and delight to give is your very body, the bread of life, and flourishing. Father, teach us that the things we don't confess are killing us. Lord, you're not someone who just wants to hear us say it. Lord, you want us to understand that when we confess our particular sins and the ways we run from you, that is your way of loosening those knots that bind our hearts to this fallen place, making way for you to come in and bring more healing. Lord, teach us to observe and to examine and to confess the ways we harbor bitterness, the ways we murder one another in our thoughts, our words, our deeds. Lord, the ways we escape through substances, through technology, through idols. Lord, teach us that all of these things are harmful and that you have the holiday at a beach in the presence of your son waiting for us. Teach us to come to you with all of our being this morning. Amen.